ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops. Pleasure Dome, located on Sunset Boulevard, in between the liquor stores and the vape stores and the head shops, right here at Nerd Melt, in the back room of the most exciting comedy club in the United States, Nerd Melt Comics. And once again, we're uh, joined here uh, by all of our friends who've come to this uh, small black box, although it's, it's more cozy in the autumn. I find in the summer, this is a punishment area. <laughs> Because there is absolutely no ventilation whatsoever or any circulation of air of any kind. It's like living in a crypt or a, uh, uh, some sort of uh, you know, sarcophagus. Uh, but then comes the autumn and the temperature drops a little and all of a sudden this place isn't so bad. If there was a little hot apple juice in the back and a keg and two guys standing in front of a pot-bellied stove talking about next baseball season, we'd have ourselves a little fucking trout fishing in America, Maine, fucking I hate black people moment in this place. <laughs> Ah, yep, yep, they shouldn't have traded for the Japanese guy. That's my impression of people in Maine talking about the Red Sox. Uh, and so, once again, we're here, and if you're listening out in Proop Cast land, the Proop Kittens, Proop Castilians, Proop Quintillions, Proop Quadrillions, and uh, Proop Vaudevillians, uh, welcome once again to the show. We hope to make this one even more powerful than the Maui one, because I have no recollection of the Maui one whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, I won't spoil anything for you, but there was a lot of mayhem and annex, but Maui was groovy. Uh, how groovy, Greg? Well, I didn't want to come home. Really? From Hawaii? The place you called Alabama with volcanoes? Well, Hawaii is a scintillating mixture of Americana and uh, tropical paradise, which means it's part army base, part shithole, part garbage dump, part nirvana. <laughs> There are places in it where you think that heaven descended uh, right here on earth as you watch the sun uh, descend into the Pacific Ocean and taste the trade wind as it wafts by you gently. And you walk in the sand in the morning and see uh, uh, the, the, the Javes, sometimes the Javes Wentley Lap. When the Javes Wentley Lap, that is such an important time because sometimes waves aren't even waves anymore. They descend in the alphabet up to the upper reaches or they ascend and all of a sudden they're J's. Uh, they're J's. The letter J didn't exist for the longest time. If you look at if you look at Latin writing and Julius Caesar and whatnot, his name is always written Iulius Caesar because I substituted for J's like we give double duty to so many letters now like why does so much heavy lifting? Uh, and I'm not saying why does so much heavy lifting. I'm saying why does so much heavy lifting? Not why does so much heavy lifting, but why does so much heavy lifting? As there's I don't know if that's an Oxford comma, but it's at least a, it's at least a playing fields of Eaton comma. Meaning annoying and superfluous, which this show often is. It's what we strive for, superfluousness and annoyingness. And I think we find them in full measure here. Uh, uh, and so uh, we went to Maui and uh, we flew over with a whole boatload of comics, uh, which was unusual because we were on a plane. And uh, very dangerous to have a boatload on a plane. We teetered precariously. At one point, the band, yes, there was a band on this plane, got up and played Near My God to Thee. And... I felt a little dicey at that point, like maybe we should have taken a more northern route, uh, one with less icebergs. So uh, the pilot came on, and uh, it w we flew on United. I don't know why I'm mentioning it was United. They were okay. It wasn't like anything special. They feed you a cardboard box, and inside it is other stuff that's less edible than the cardboard box. 
And it's one's called like the Mediterranean pack. And it's like, I've been to the Mediterranean. No one in the Mediterranean has ever insulted me by charging me $11.99 for a cardboard box with some hummus in it. In the Mediterranean, it's always a beguiling lad with a do-rag around his head or a sassy lass with slow eyes who looks at you with a, like a burning incandescent candle that she'll never go out as long as the breezes blow around the azure lake that is the Mediterranean. They don't go like, it's eleven ninety nine. we only take credit cards. And I don't remember if there was entertainment. Oh, yeah, I watched part of this movie. Does anyone know the name of this fucking movie? It has Mark Rufaloop and uh, uh, Kira Knightland. And uh, he's a record producer, and she's a folk singer. And he's married to Catherine Keener. And uh, has anyone seen this? Music and Lyrics. Music and Lyrics, is that what it's called? Yeah. Begin again, thank you. Uh, music and lyrics would have been a better name for it because it's all about music and lyrics. However, he does. His character begins again. Uh, begin again is such a hilarious, like, uh, a world according to Garp eighth grade play that you wrote. Isn't it? That title. Do you remember in Garp, the, the, the books that Garp writes are the world according to Benson Haver? And when he's a kid, he writes the pension grill parser, right? And uh, in the movie The Wonder Boys, what is the, he writes The Love Parade. That's his novel, right? That is such a great fictional name for a fucking to actually call your movie begin again and it's 2014 and there's no red balloons and no shots of the Paris Metro wow that takes some fucking brass baby if you're gonna really lay that one on me so I didn't watch the first few minutes because we were on a plane and I was drinking but then later as the drink wore on and I became bored with listening to my iPod I uh uh because Matt's fucked it all up the point is this I'm joking I'm joking uh, uh, I started to watch the picture and you know that Mark Ruffalo he's alright right he's kind of a dissolute record producer in it and then like he sees he's, he's, dr- he's drinking in his car and smoking a cigar which I'm like okay so far it's good and uh, driving around New York today not in the 70s although it seemed like the 70s because he was scruffy and shit he does that kind of Columbo thing you know where like Mark Ruffalo does the you know he's just forgotten something and uh he goes to this bar and it's open mic night of folk night or whatever and Kira Knightley gets up and is a folk singer stay with me <laughs> you sat through five movies where you thought she was a pirate girl so <laughs> bend your disbelief a little bit what was the one with Viggo Mortensen and uh, 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 Michael Fassbender and they were Freud and whatnot? Well, and it was what, what, David Cronenberg directed it Kira Knightley was in that too method? what was it called? Yeah. A Dangerous Method the something method? A Dangerous Method, yeah, right. A Dangerous Method. You know what A Dangerous Method is? That's a fucking late 70s Christopher Walken shit movie. <laughs> like Dogs of War, you know what I mean? Christopher Walken goes to Guatemala to settle a revolution, but there's cocaine everywhere. And that's in his trailer. A Dangerous Method with James Woods as Chano. Uh, no, and so, yeah, we want... Kira's not so hot in that one. Uh, but anyway, she gets up and sings this folk song. And while Mark Ruffalo is watching, he, he imagines the instruments coming in one by one. And that was the ABC after school movie special part of it for me. Like, she's singing and he hears a bum, bum, a ka bum, ka do ka dum, bum, back, ka boom, bum, back. 
<laughs> boom, boom, boom. And then he's watching and he hears, right? Like every single fucking instrument. All we were spared was French horn and oboe, right? Like there was fucking glockenspiel, you know, timpani, auto harp. It was like, all right, I got it. And that's all in his mind. Then she sits down and he goes, buy me a beer. I think you're a great artist and shit. And she's like, fuck you. And that was the funny part because then he goes, I don't have any money. You have to buy these beers. And that was the Hollywood part because he's like, I can get you a deal. I don't have any money. Buy these beers. Uh, anyway, so that was rather amusing. Then we get to Hawaii. They gave us lays. Uh, Eddie Pepitone was there, James Adomian, uh, dozens of comedians on this plane. And, uh, we, uh, 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 and, of course, the hijinks never stopped. I don't know if you've ever flown with comedians, but we put on an impromptu cabaret in our aisle. <laughs> it was much like the Brady Bunch movie where they all get up and sing good time music. We, we, we were grabbing the mic and shit and like, oh, food's now available, but whatever. Uh, uh, if you call it food. Anyway, I was at an audition two days ago. And... <laughs> If we'd only made it like Nerd Metal, it would have been awesome. And, uh, oh, no artwork tonight. Just a simple black wall that indicates a lack of fuck. (laughs) What do we have no more to give? Oh, a fuck. Well given. There it is. This is like being in Thomas Edison's first studio when we make the first motion picture in the 1890s here. Nobody move or breathe. Put out those cigarettes. The film is flammable. If you will. Uh, so, yeah. Um, thank you. That was Fred out sneeze. Um, we, uh, we go to Hawaii, and, we, and uh, they put us in a bus, which I, I, I grew, uh, as we've discussed on the show, and uh, my friend Jeff Davis, who you know from the magnificent uh, podcast, which also records are called Harmontown. Well, well uh, uh, his slogan is, and I adhere to it uh, strenuously, group fun is no fun. Uh, <laughs> these, are, these are my peers and colleagues, and some of them whom are my good friends, and I still don't want to hang out with them <laughs> for five days. Uh, I brought my wife with me, so it kind of, you know, I want to have fun with her. And like, uh, so we, uh, we, we all were put into this hotel. We get to the place, and uh, uh, there's no, we've been, now, we haven't eaten since the morning, right? since LA because it's a long flight to Hollywood. I'm not complaining this is like a first world diatribe you know I went to Whole Foods the other day and they have sprouted quinoa but not the kind of quinoa they used to carry how am I to put a dinner together it's five hours so now it's been eight hours since we've at, we got on the we wait for a year to get our bags then we get lays and whatnot and uh, and, and cowrie shells which I love uh, because I traded mine for a maiden later um, I got two pa- two papayas and a wahine um, the uh, 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 we get in a bus and now we drive another out and they go because uh, it's Hawaii it'll be in about 50 minutes to the hotel and because uh, they all have kind of a Keanu Reeves delivery, <laughs> I discovered the the biggest part of Keanu's game is not that he's Canadian or not, you know, any of the salient facts of his. It's that he lived in Hawaii briefly, and that was enough for him to pick up the whoa. <laughs> We're going to be driving for quite some time, so I would make myself comfortable. <laughs> and like you're like, what? Didn't, aren't you giving emphasis to all the wrong words in order to communicate? Uh, Maybe I am, but maybe not. Uh, So we get to the hotel, and it's you know it's on the beach, fabulous, whatnot. And uh, there's a a, a, so after like a day or two, 
uh, I start to actually enjoy life and relax. My contempt for humanity that L.A. burns into you. Now, mind you, I had just come from Stockholm, so I wasn't feeling, I wasn't that had up. Yeah, we flew from Stockholm to L.A. and then got on a plane the next day and went to fucking Hawaii. Because Ferdinand Magellan is my booking agent. And I am to circumnavigate the globe and bring back spice for the empire. And if I don't, there's going to be hell to pay. The king of Spain will know of this. So I wasn't that head up because we'd been in Stockholm. And it's hard to get head up in Stockholm. Uh, although the weed was uh, light on the ground. Uh, um, if you listen to the Stockholm episode, you'll know that I said I didn't score any or whatever. But everyone offered me weed at the club. <laughs> Much to their peril because evidently they can take away your family, everything if in stock. Yeah, it's a real issue. So then we get to Hawaii where it's not so much an issue as a, a site-specific hassle. <laughs> I uh, had heard online that, uh, 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 I thought that was a joke, but there you are. I, I, uh, a guy told me online that uh, uh, there was a fruit stand nearby that you could go to. Of course, there's fruit stands everywhere all over the island, so who's to know which one it was? And uh, when I did finally go to the fruit stand, the guy was uh, inconceivably repulsive. He was like a Bulgarian character actor from the 40s. And he had a huge a pitted nose and, and, a, and a demeanor like a badger that had just taken a high colonic, right? He was real huffy, huffy, huffy. Everyone else you meet on the island goes, hello, how are you today? Or, fantastically, aloha. And you go, aloha. And then when you finish your transaction, they go, mahalo. And you're like, mahalo. And then, if you're really cool, pow. Um, I, I don't know what that means, but it's awesome. And uh, I gets up to him, and I buys two uh, um, papayas and a, um, a, a guava. And, uh, some, and he gives us a taste of pineapple that he has in a Tupperware thing that clearly was cleaned last during the administration in which Hawaii was admitted to the Union. That would be the Kennedy administration. And you, you put a little uh, 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 toothpick in it, and we all had our little thing. And then he's like, $10. And I'm like, $10? You grew these here. I'm willing to pay a billion dollars for everything else on this island, like a burger and shit. I don't know if you've been to Hawaii, but like a burger and a beer is like $47, right? It is fucking stri- It's like being in Paris. It's like Paris prices. But there's never... There are croissants, but they're like Asian croissants because you're in Hawaii. I bought a croissant the last day, and it tasted exactly like Hawaiian sweetbread. And that's a fucking croissant, right? It was crispy and crunchy. But it had Hawaiian street bread flavor because you're like, or street bread if you like. Street bread! Because there's no bread left to go. Street bread! It's the only bread for which we have dough. Street bread! They eat sweetened bread in Hawaii. They eat sweetened everything, let's be very honest. Uh, if they ran out of sweetener, everyone would perish in two seconds. Uh, and so I became relaxed. We walked on the beach. We went to uh, this bar in Paia, Paia, P-A-I-A. And uh, um, it, Willie Nelson evidently has something to do with it. There was pictures of Leon Russell on the wall and uh, um, uh, uh, Alain Toussaint, right? Except their names were on the bottom of the pictures. So I thought, well, this is for squares because if you have to say who Leon Russell is, no one looks like Leon Russell. If you've ever had an uncle who's come back from Vietnam wearing a white suit, that's what Leon Russell looks like. He has silver hair and a cowboy hat, a white suit, and, and what Leon Russell sings like this. Uh, it's like he's in the Jetsons, right? 
has an amazing voice. And he wrote uh, Superstar, right, which uh, uh, Bette Midler and uh, the Carpenters had a... I'm not gay. (laughs) (laughs) But I had Bette Midler's first two albums because even as a boy, I was making no case for this. And uh, that's the one that goes fantastically... uh, don't you remember you told me you loved me, baby? You said you'll be coming back this way again, maybe. And then the best lyric ever written by any rock star. Baby, 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 oh, baby. I love you. Fucking A, man. Baby, 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 oh, baby. That's good weed. <laughs> Long ago. So he goes to the bar, and there's all these bikers in the car park, right? And I, we, we pulls up in the rental. And by the way, I don't know what we had. We had like a, a, a Ford, what was Mike Meehan, the old comic from San Francisco, my old buddy, would say, we had a Ford Molotov. <laughs> <laughs> At any point, this thing could blow, right? The kind of car you start, and then you put in gear, and it goes, like that. And then, then starts, you know, like a, like a Warner Brothers cartoon, like, blah, 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 blah. And so, and no, you know, it could turn. It was this big. It was like a smart car. It was that douchey. It was the size of a smart car, right? So you're like, I'm a douche everywhere you go. So I put the cowrie shells on the uh, rearview mirror so that I could indicate tourist. Uh, as if no one knew when I got out of a car that I was a tourist. Imagine me in linen. That's all you have to think about. You'd never see me in linen hair, but in Hawaii, I wore linen, right? Like a little, you know, a little kicky little fucking linen shirt, whatnot. And uh, no shorts. One of the comics, Kevin Shea, who I, is a good buddy of mine, says to me, we went to this Hawaiian, um, like, uh, uh, ceremonial, you know, uh, uh, welcome the Howleys to the sacred land ritual uh, where the guy stared at my wife's chest as much as you possibly could. There was really no backing. You know, it's Hawaii style. It was like, hey, that's a beautiful necklace. Like, all right, all right. All right, all right, okay? This isn't a Rock Hudson movie. This isn't, this isn't that cool the whole time. And Kevin Shea said, I was hoping we'd see you in shorts today. And I was like, I do wear shorts, but you're not living with me. If you cohabitate with me, you might see me wear shorts. If you do not cohabitate with me, you will rarely, if ever. I remember I saw Robert Palmer once on TV. Robert Palmer. Will you? Is there a little Robert Palmer on? on, Yeah, I know. I've taken him right off the playlist. It should be under artists. There's no playlist with Robert Palmer on it. And it's not the hits. It's not every kind of people are addicted to love any of that shit. We go deep with the blue-eyed soul Robert Palmer from the 70s that coked up. Well, there was no arrow, wasn't he? Where he was? That's what makes Robert Palmer awesome. A lot of rock stars go clean. Robert Palmer died at like 53 at the Ritz in Paris. His heart exploded in his suite. He smoked fucking cigarettes every day and did as much coke as possible. Looked gorgeous. And did you find anything? Here, give me a little. He always wore like a bespoke fucking tailored suit and had a bitching white cloth. He was a white guy, but he. Right? Hey, hey, Julia. You're acting so cute. Yeah, you have to sing like you, you've got something caught in your throat. And he, he didn't dance. And I sure would like to handle what's between your ears. You're a temptation to a man. I could not resist you, but I won't if I can. You're so unexpected. I was never
staring you with his chin a good deal of the time. So Robert Palmer was on this TV show in London, and it was called uh, Don't Forget Your Toothbrush. And uh, it was a game show, and you brought your toothbrush and your passport with you to the studio, and one lucky person was sent on a trip around the world, or, or wherever it was, Thailand and whatnot. And uh, one of the games on the show was you had to play an actual celebrity in trivia against their life. And they would get people who like knew everything about people's lives, right? So Robert Palmer gets on, and guys are beating him on questions and shit. Like where he's from, who he started with and shit. He... I think he smoked Dunhill Lights. Anyways, uh, he, the, the guy goes, what, uh, the, Chris Evans reads, what will we never see you in? And Robert Palmer buzzes in and goes, jeans. <laughs> It's to be remembered, ladies and gentlemen. Not that I don't wear jeans. I'm wearing them right now. But, of course, mine are black and unbelievably hip. Uh, really? We saw the cut, Greg. Hmm. Really? Really? Boot cut? Hey. Are, are we going to be doing the bus and truck company of Urban Cowboy a little bit later in the show, Greg? Are we going to be making love to Deb Winger? So, uh, I didn't wear shorts. Uh, I did with my wife uh, on the beach and whatnot, uh, but I don't think anyone saw me. <laughs> and who cares in Hawaii? No matter what body, what do they call them? Dysmorphic issues you have. <laughs> we all have issues with our body. My breasts, I wish were smaller. <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, people say, oh, my ass is too big or I have 15 chins or whatever their problem is. Every, we all freak out about it every day. Go to Hawaii because... <laughs> You're off the hook, baby. <laughs> it's Kamehameha time. <laughs> they really can't get enough food down. And uh, the people who live there make the people who visit there look thin. And that is fucking awesome of them. People in Paris don't dress down because you came. You know what I'm saying? They don't put their fucking Burberry away and their blue blazer and their bitching glasses and their fucking cigarette holder. No, they don't. They're still doing that while you're there in shorts and a fanny pack going, Where's the Shams Delize? <laughs> but in Hawaii, you can forget your shoes and be the coolest person on the island. <laughs> Fuck, where's my shoes? No one ever goes like, You're underdressed. <laughs> A friend of mine said to me, and it's so true, no one combs their hair. <laughs> you see women who are in so much need of conditioner and guys who look like they're Sammy Hagar fucking looky-likeys <laughs> with just flyaway fucking hair, and you're like, there's too much salt in the air. I get it. <laughs> After a couple days, you're like, fuck it, you know? I'm really not going to wear shoes, and my hair's going to do what it wants. Uh, a woman came up to me, and this is the compliment she gave me. We did, did stand-up shows. It was a comedy festival, after all. And uh, we did some sets, which really interfered with me getting high. Uh, well, it didn't interfere, but it interrupted. Uh, it was a speed bump in the comprehensive ocean of my getting high. And uh, uh, a woman came up to me after one of the shows and goes... Um, Oh, I did a, we did sets, regular sets. And I didn't want to do any material. And I talked to the other comics. I took a small canvassing of the other comedians. And uh, we all decided that after a couple of days there, your care about putting a finely crafted set together to entertain people had completely dissipated. <laughs> to, not only do I not want to go on stage, I don't give a fuck about anything anymore. <laughs> like, it's warm out. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. The trade wind blows. I'm drunk. You know, I'm like, oh, you're inside me. Ah, you know, you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> 
Papaya, there's a papaya. And then that's it. You don't fucking care. You don't fucking care about going, the other day I noticed a sign. <laughs> Who are these people? So uh, I got, I just talked about Hawaii and whatnot. And uh, a woman came up to me after the show and she had flip-flops and jeans. This is the nighttime outfit. <laughs> jeans means nighttime. I was wearing my jeans in the daytime and a Hawaiian woman uh, yelled at me, where's your shorts? And I was like, I, they're in my room? That's a shitty answer, right? So I didn't say anything. I just went, <laughs> and um, she wouldn't get off my dick too. It was, she hectored me all the way to my car. Where's your shorts? Where's your shorts? Where's your shorts? I'm like, where's your fucking restraint with food? <laughs> Surely you've met a loaf of bread that you were like mildly disinterested in. <laughs> I didn't say that. I would never say anything like that. I went back to my car, chastened, chastised. And, uh, and this is my chastened look. <laughs> we, uh, a woman came up to me after the show, uh, blouse. Uh, and, and you don't hear the word blouse much anymore I, I wanted to bring it back tonight And I have She had a blouse on You know like if you'd gone to uh, uh, Pier 1 Imports or Cost Plus And went to the Mexican section Which is actually from Afghanistan or whatever uh, And one of those bosses Jeans and flip flops And I was going to the men's room And a, a string of ladies were coming out of the ladies room As they often do And uh, well I don't you mean not like it's obviously it's an occurrence like the tides or the moon <laughs> women go into bathrooms and women come out but I mean after, after a show as all women know there's a pile up in the women's bathroom where they all have to wait patiently with one another for hours while the one fucking commode is used whereas guys are urinating in the sink in each other's mouths and uh, uh, we, we, cup, we, we cup our hands and we, we take urine from other men we, it's super Greek in men's bathrooms <laughs> Like, like Belgium, right? <laughs> and because uh, some men's rooms are elegant, like I love old-fashioned, like uh, you know, the the kind that the floor to eye level urinals that are made of marble that you find in some really old-fashioned restaurants. And then if it's even sexier, the the bar back will take the ice in and throw it in all of the urinals so that you get to pee on ice, which for men is like we're all like. Oh. <laughs> Because it crackles and it steams and you're like, I'm, somehow I'm in Scandinavia or whatever. I'm Hans Brinker after a hot match, you know, like I've just won the Stanley Cup, whatever it is that's going through your mind. Or like I'm in, you know, I, I, I'm in France and I'm, I'm in the Bourbon dynasty and we have ice in our urinals. And I don't know what the fuck you're thinking, but uh, stop it. And then there's the shorter urinals, which are always disappointing. And then there's hilariously, in a lot of rooms, uh, men's rooms, uh, there's two uh, grown-up sized urinals that are hung at a certain level, presuming you're over a certain size. And then there's one quite close to the floor, as if kindergartners are coming in to urinate. And sometimes when it's crowded, you're forced to use the kindergarten urinal, which means it starts here, and you're like this. Hi! Like, <laughs> I could stand like this, but it would look really freaky. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we, we uh, I remember where I was, by the way. 
Really prove it in the next sentence. Okay. <laughs> she walks up to me outside the ladies' room and she says, uh, and this is my favorite kind of comedy comment. Obviously, I like unqualified raves. Like, I worship you more than my parents. And if there was anyone uh, in between you and something that you wanted, I would kill them with an avocado. <laughs> Those are the kind of compliments I like, right? You remind me of a young Dionysus before he went commercial. But then... There's the Midwestern uh, and uh, sort of uh, outback comment that people that passes as a compliment that people often say to comedians, which is this: "You're you're pretty good, man," <laughs> or even better, "You're pretty funny." To which my response is: "You were a pretty good audience. You almost got everything I said." <laughs> this woman walked up to me and she said, "I thought you were the funniest one, and I never go anywhere." <laughs> so the breadth and scope of your experience is limited to your backyard because she carried on and explained further she expounded and said I just watched the sun go up and the sun go down and sit in my yard and I was like if I were you I would do precisely the same thing <laughs> that's how relaxed I was and we went like this. And by the way, in Hawaii, a little tip if you're visiting. Um, I shake hands like, uh, you know, uh, John Hamm on Mad Men. You know, like, <laughs> like 60s style where, the, you know, you give them the fish and they boom and they grab. And then there's guys, guys know this more than us, but women know it too. There's the sticky hand, which is always freaky. But then there's the fish hand where they just kind of put their hand in your hand and you're like, clasp me firmly, but not with too much strenuousness. Don't give me the fucking Marine Corps fucking I want to kill you, crush your phalanges handshake. If you ever, I've been on USO tours and every single soldier just goes, then just crushes your hand. And I literally had a big thing bulging out of my hand. like, And I was like, I don't want to be a pussy about this. And then a guy said to me, go like this with your finger, which is like really weird to go like, you know, when you shake someone's hand, like, what am I, Eddie Money? You know, like, everyone I meet, I'm like, hey, baby, hold on to me. Whatever will be, will be. I didn't get it. Uh, but... Uh, in Hawaii, when you reach for their hands, I think Hunter Thompson describes it in the book, and I can't remember, I think it's, um, I don't remember if it's Campaign Trail or, or, or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I think it's Las Vegas. He goes, he reached for his hand to shake someone's hand, and they gave him the Drug Brothers shake, which is this one, right? That one. <laughs> Where your thumbs clasp, right? You do your, his hand comes up like that, your hand comes up. And in Hawaii, I must have gone like this a million times and fucked it up. Everyone gave me this shake. Because it's still 1974 there. And I kept, I kept going like this. And after four days, I still didn't even relax into the... Uh, the Cecilia and Capono shake. Uh, and like that. So uh, we should start the show. And when we do, it's going to be good. We've received so many lovely gifts here. Chris, this young man here. Uh, Chris, is it? Chris, there you are, uh, gave me a book called High Society, uh, The Central Role of Mind-Altering Drugs in History, Science, and Culture by Mike J. What a, what a hilariously pun-like name for the author. I guess Scott Doobie was busy that day with Johnny Cut-A-Fucking-Rail. 
someone say stop. stop. There we go. Let's see what's on this page. De Quincey's example demonstrated that self-experimentation could not only lead to a discovery of new drugs, but could also transform the understanding of ones that had been known and used for centuries. De Quincey wrote Confessions of an Opium Eater. Uh, the European cannabis or hemp was weak in psychoactive chemicals. Boo! <laughs> Where's Gregor Mendel when you need him? I need some monks to fucking work on that strain. All the male plants must leave the garden. Does no one know nothing about horticulture? Uh, this book looks really good. Thank you very much for that. I don't know who this is. Oh, it's Crow oh, Albert Hoff, the discoverer of LSD. He only died a few uh, years ago, Mr. Hoffman. He discovered it in Switzerland. Uh, he dosed himself with what we would call now, uh, what I read that, uh, uh, what's his name? Julian Cope, who's quite a seeker. Uh, Julian Cope said what would, he would refer to as a shamanistic dose of LSD. <laughs> Mr. Hoffman invented it in the studio and then fucking went like boop, boop, boop and took some and was like, hi. <laughs> went to his neighbor's house and asked for a glass of milk. <laughs> that is good drugs. Uh, oh, this has everything. I'm really going to enjoy this. Thank you. I'm flying uh, 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 to San Francisco and driving to Chico uh, this weekend. So this will be very good. Thank you very much for this, Chris. Jeannie, our very good friend uh, and friend of the show, uh, works. we work together at a, a giant uh, monolithic corporation that exists out near the beach here in Los Angeles, whose name shall go uh, unspoken. And... Uh, Say you were a cowboy and you were really happy about something. That's what you would yell. Uh, and she said, I was at work and I made these for you. And one is uh, 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 evidently ripped from a Renaissance painting. And it's a, a man yelling with what appears to be a cow sitting behind him. A very fuzzy cow. And it says, how the fuck does gravity work? And then there's one of a saint here with a Bible in his hand. And uh, where the other saints would go below, or the other apostles, she's put David Bowie from the album Diamond Dogs. Thank you. And this one says, you're writing on the book cover. You're stoned. Here's more rolling paper. Thank you. Here we come. I keep my friends serene. Here we come. Oh, baby, come on to me. Here we come. Uh, now she's come here and gone. Come out of the garden, baby. You'll catch a death in the fog. Young girls that call them the diamond. Oh, uh, 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 uh. Well, Halloween Jack is a real cool cat. And he lives on top of Manhattan Jays. The elevator's broke, so he sat down the road. Oh, that's a goodie. Uh, and this is for your buddy Joshua X, uh, at Joshua Xline. He lives in West Virginia. I'm going to follow him on Twitter. She has indicated he is a liberal in West Virginia and needs all the support he can get. <laughs> Joshua, this one's for you tonight, bro. Hey, uh, wow. Uh, West Virginia, I'm not even going to talk about the fucking election because I'm so revolted by the fact that this country turns into a banana republic every other election. And there's fucking voting rolls lost and black people denied voting and every, every uh, ethnicity and age group denied voting rights and college kids that don't get to use their IDs. And you know what? I'm not buying it. Let me put it that way. Let me put it that way. Uh, really, do you have evidence for all this? Yeah, I do. Do I have to provide it to you? No, I fucking don't. I just got back from Hawaii. You know what I have to provide? Fucking. 
My understanding it is it ain't no thing but a chicken wing. <laughs> if you wish to write us, you may at fanmail4greg at gmail.com. I read them all. Smartestoutofspecialthing.com. We haven't had a question in a while. But we should do that again, though, right, Maddie? Yeah. He says yes. Uh, we'll be uh, tomorrow night at the Cine Family. Uh, this is not for the people who are listening to the show. This will have been well past. But in these people's future, and their foreseeable future, the eventuality of seeing me again in a 24-hour period, drinking and vitriolic, uh, is a very live possibility. I will be at the Cine Family tomorrow on Fairfax Avenue. Uh, we're going to show uh, Pam Greer in the black exploitation classic Coffee. Uh, which is, yeah, if you've never seen it, it's really good. Uh, really good is a, a, an Anthony Bourdain level of adjective. <laughs> I failed myself there. It's super bad. There's no other fucking way around it. You may remember uh, the James Brown song where he says, I've got a thing uh, that, that tells me what to do. Uh, because I've got soul and I'm super bad. And then he has the other greatest line besides baby, 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 oh baby <laughs> in rock history, which is sometimes I feel so nice. I want to try myself with you. <laughs> that is fucking that. I don't even know where to begin on that. Um, hey, Dante, wake up <laughs> from your grave. Right? Hey, Eloise and Abelard. Sometimes I feel so nice. I want to try myself with you. I got soul. Uh, 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 and I'm super bad. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah. And then, as James Brown would ask, can I get the drummer some? <laughs> uh, we'll be at the Cine Family showing coffee. It's really a fantastic. Uh, it's short too. The, the the two precepts that Jennifer and I keep in mind when programming uh, the Cine Family Greg Proof Film Club are one. Is it short? And two, does it fucking rage? We've not showed one movie that sucked balls. We've not shown one movie that was dull. Like, I do other people's shows, and they show different kinds of movies, because they have to. But I don't have to. I only show movies that fucking scream down the fucking screen into your eyeballs and leave you breathless with fucking desire. We've shown in the last year uh, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. What did we... I don't even remember what we showed last month, but it was fucking good. And uh, the month before that, we showed The Man Who Would Be King, and uh, and this month, Coffee. I married a witch with uh, Veronica Lake and Frederick March. The best Halloween movie ever. He finds her in a burning building and she picks him up. He picks her up and carries her out and she turns out to be a witch from the 1600s. Yeah. And, and she does everything to fucking shag him and, and get him away from his uh, fiance. It is, yeah. Take a chance. I know you're busy playing Angry Birds or whatever. Or other games from four years ago. Uh, Pam Greer and coffee tomorrow night. Pam Greer, wow. Uh, yeah, bombshellian. What can I tell you? There, there had not been black lady heroes that shot white guys in the face in movies until Pam Greer. There'd been Dorothy Dandridge, there'd been Lena Horne, there'd been uh, Ethel Waters, there'd been, uh, you know, Ma Rainey for fuck's sake, but there had never been on, on screen a woman as badass as her. And I think that, that the poster says something like, She's the baddest one woman hit, one chick hit squad in town. Because it's the 70s and that's how we rolled. I want to mention something ever so briefly before I carry on with this unbelievably interesting diatribe. 
There were no drink caddies in cars in the 70s. So when you would buy a Coca-Cola, and it was inevitably a Coke or a Dr. Pepper because they didn't sell water in stores, <laughs> you put it between your legs, or you tried to balance it on the side, or hysterically, on every car in America, you'd open the glove compartment, and you'd open it up, and there'd be two circles drawn on the glove compartment, and you were to put your drink on that circle. <laughs> and as soon as you went, it went, Wah! like that onto you there was no way to carry hot coffee every lid of a coffee cup you had to tear at, in your car a hole in like this to create the hole that's already perforated for you now and so you do this for like a year and then you go Aah! and then you put it between your legs and you get to a stoplight and you'd have a cigarette lit and you go Aah! because it would pour all over your testicles how any people from the 70s made it through the 70s with pudenda and fingers is beyond me. There was nowhere to put fucking drinks. You could buy them. You could buy them from that horrible... Uh, what, there, there was all these like, like Sears type places where you could go on, you know, in like catalogs and you could order them. And it was two sandbags on the side of a plastic thing. And in the plastic thing, there were two drink caddies and a place for your fags. <laughs> so you could throw your smokes and maybe your shades into that part. And then the... But you had to, and it laid because every car where the, where the tranny came through, and by tranny I mean there was a gay man wearing, or a straight man wearing women's clothes underneath your car that shifted for you. There was an enormous hump in the middle of every car. And so you put that thing with the sandbags on the hump. Now, of course, there's drink caddies everywhere. The world's gotten a lot better in a lot of ways. <laughs> When James Earl Carter was president, you could be guaranteed Dr. Pepper was going to be on your crotch. <laughs> or, if you really remember, Simba. Or even Mr. Pibb, which I believe was Coke's effort to duplicate Dr. Pepper. Mr. Pibb. <laughs> Anybody interested in a soft drink called Mr. Pibb? And to be honest, it was a little too soon after the Sidney Poitier uh, Heat of the Night series of movies. <laughs> they call me Mr. Pib. <laughs> what do they call you back home? They call me Mr. Pib. <laughs> I'm a delicious soft drink that's based on Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Sidney Poitier for Mr. Pib. What did he do to deserve this? That's what I think we all have to be asking ourselves. He never did anything to me. And yet I did that. Uh, we'll be in Sacramento, California. That's the capital of this state, by the way. It's also the capital of depression for the entirety of the area. Uh, I'm joking, of course. Sacramento uh, has fabulously uh, named ABC123. Those are their streets. So it's easy to find your way around in Sacramento. <laughs> According to my friend Larry Brown, they didn't want to challenge the populace by giving the streets names like Elm and Maple and stuff like that. So they went one, two, three, ABC. Uh, and then Jermaine Jackson chimed in. Come on, come on, come on, let me tell you what it's all about. Reading and writing, arithmetic are the branches of the learning tree. ABC. Easy as one, two, three. I don't think I have that on my iPod. That's shocking, isn't it? Uh, considering the first album I bought was, uh, with my own money, was uh, Jackson 5's Greatest Hits. I was 11. It was like 1971. Uh, and it had 
a perforated cover there were Jackson 5 were in a portrait in a frame right Marlon Brando Tito Jackie uh, Jermaine and, and Michael and you could push the frame out and hang it on your wall <laughs> I never did I kept it but I assume a lot of people around America fucking punched it out and fucking put a push pin in it or in those days a piece of crappy scotch tape <laughs> and hung it up and shit and that had a lot of good jams on it what was that one? Never can say goodbye. That one's off the deep end. Uh, every time I think I've had enough. So we'll be in Sacramento on the 20th of November to the 22nd. We'll be in uh, Brooklyn uh, at the Bell House in the irradiated dolphin district of Go Anus. <laughs> the 29th. Uh, we're arriving on Thanksgiving night and we're going to. Thank you for snorking, whoever snorked. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for snorking. Uh, let me see if there's a mind-altering snork reference in here. <laughs> oh, Ibogaine. That makes you snork. Um, so uh, let's see here. Uh, the, then the, the, uh, the December, we'll be at Portland at the Helium Comedy Club. Uh, Portland is a Kyle Kinane lookalike contest, as you know. <laughs> we'll be performing up there. For our friends in Portland who keep tweeting me and texting me and emailing me, the podcast will be on the 4th. The stand-up will be on the 5th and 6th of December. We'll be doing a podcast here at the Nerd Melt on the 18th. We'll be back here on the 10th of uh, December. You've gone out of order. That's how I wrote it. <laughs> I really need to look at my shit. We'll be in Chicago. Uh, please join us in Chicago, my Chicago friends. All of my friends in Illinois, uh, please drive out to Chicago. And even if you're in uh, uh, Merrillville, Indiana, think about it. Uh, take the highway over. And, uh, and this is a song that Jeff Davis made up when we were driving uh, to Indiana from Chicago uh, one time when we were, I was with the improv group. Uh, he goes, um, that we saw a sign and it said for one of their crappy restaurants in the Midwest, Chicken Diane, and he went, here's a little ditty about Chicken Diane. <laughs> it's not Eros Con Poil. It's not Coke Alvin. <laughs> And then the other famous one we made up there because we were in the Midwest was Gravy When you're cold you're congealing Pour you Whoa over ice That would be the group sticks What fell down when I was so loud? That's what excited me. I was like Ella Fitzgerald in the 70s commercial where she broke the window and they went, is it live or is it Memorex? <laughs> Something actually fell when I was yelling as loud as I was. That's Jeff Davis too, by the way. I give credit to all my jokes. We cried laughing. <laughs> Little ditty. About <laughs> chicken dying. <laughs> It's not a Coke, Alvin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've never really had feelings about John Cougar Mellow Van. I mean, I remember him in the 80s. His politics are unassailable. That's the thing about him. He's like the Indiana Springsteen or whatever. Some of the music's pretty rough. There's no question. You know, you listen to it and you're like, mm. <laughs> But him as a person, he seems cool. So I I'm not going to diss him. But some of the songs. What was that one? <laughs> and the walls come tumbling down. Like, no. <laughs> no. 
This is like church group stuff. Uh, Chicago on the 10th of December. Please be there. The message is perfectly simple. The meaning is clear. Don't ever stray too far and don't disappear. No, don't disappear. (laughs) Be near me. Be near me in Chicago. Uh, Then we'll be at Bloomington, Illinois, at the Bloomington Center for the Performing Arts. Um, Yes, Bloomington has a center for the performing arts. There's actually artists wandering around Bloomington, Illinois. Where do we we meet? Where do we, as the Wizard of Oz would say, otherwise hobnob? At the Bloomington Center. Join me there. Uh, New Year's Eve will be uh, at the Punchline all week long. Uh, The podcast is on the 30th. Then we're doing a show on the 31st. Two shows, in fact. And then no show on the 1st. And then a show on the 2nd and a show on the 3rd. Yeah, it's one of those weird weeks. Join us in San Francisco. We'll also be recording a live album uh, with Matt uh, Belknap and Ryan McMenamin's uh, awesome record label, which we haven't done an album for ages. Um, The last one we did was an EP from about five years ago called uh, Proof Sticks In. But we're going to do a new album in San Francisco that week weekend so join us that weekend and we'll record our new album and i say album because it's i think are we going to do vinyl yeah Yeah, we're going to do vinyl uh but you know why i don't want anyone to ever notice me (laughs) i want my career to sail along (laughs) only uh, albino cave fish that live in kentucky And only, what are they called? Coelacanths? You know, the kind that live in the deep sea fish that they discovered in the 30s that they went, oh my God, this fish is 25 million years old. Where has it been living? (laughs) My album is the coelacanth. (laughs) Let me put it this way. The Onion won't even have it as best albums of 2015, which it surely will be. (laughs) (laughs) My ego just superseded my own laughter. If you wish to join us uh, with the Who's Line crew, there's bottles and shit's falling. I love it tonight. Chaos. The stars are falling. Uh, we'll, uh, the Who's Line kids will be on the road. Uh, we'll be in. Oh, that's this week. This will be too late. Okay, never mind. Fuck it. Anyway, we're on the road. And we'll be on the road next year and shit like that. And also, next year, I'll be in Philly and Boston for my Philly and Boston friends. Uh, we'll see you in those two places. Boston. You need a lot of fucking self-reflection. You need to look in the mirror and think about the shit you're up to. Philly, whatevs. You've got a lot of issues. Jesus Christ. There's no time to do the show. Let's get to what's what. Uh, Big Hank, uh, Big Bank Hank of the Sugar Hill Gang passed away. Um, he had evidently some sort of horrible liver thing going on. He was also, he was born Henry Jackson. He was also known as fantastically Imp the Dimp. You may remember the Sugar Hill Gang. Now, I was in college when this record came out, and it really is the first, like, great rap hit single, hip-hop single. Yes, there's Bo Diddley. Yes, there's Gil Scott Heron. Yes, there's uh, The Last Poets. There's a million groups you can think of. Uh, every blues singer ever, by the way, uh, did rap music. But, um... Uh, uh, this record is really the hip hop record um, let's see here uh, so sad to hear before Rapper's Delight became a multi-platinum hit one of the first rap songs played on the radio and the first hip hop single to become a top 40 billboard chart hit Pam Kennedy in my dormitory at San Francisco State brought it in and played it and we all got in the room together and I said a hip a hop a hip a hip a hip a hip and why don't you spin that one while we're talking here and that'll be better than whatever I'm saying the and it, you have to remember, it was the boring. 
it had been invented, what, like three or four years before in New York and shit, and was rarely heard by white people at all. Uh, and and uh, but, uh, they'd been doing it on the streets in New York. During the big blackout of 77, they'd taken cords and run them from the uh, power lines all the way. I like, bought like a thousand cords and run them to parks and shit, and were freestyling. This record is a compilation of a lot of different things. A woman named Sylvia Robertson, uh, Robinson, uh, who was in the group Mickey and Sylvia that did Love is Strange in the 50s, um, brought together Big Bank Hank, Wonder Mike, and Master G for the label's debut record, right? Uh, one of the few women to produce a lot of uh, records, uh, hip-hop records and whatnot. Um, Rapper's Delight wasn't just a catchy hit the moment that hip-hop became commercially viable, blah, 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 blah. Um, here, crank this up just for a second here. You may notice the jam that... spinning in the heavens so hard uh, tonight. Uh, I want to talk about a little bit about Ms. Robinson, Sylvia Robinson, because Sylvia Robinson started the Sugar Hill, uh, uh, started that label, so, and uh, Sugar Hill Gang was their first giant hit. Um, she and her husband uh, in the 50s had did a record called uh, Love is Strange. Let's see here. Um, well, they also accused him of stealing a, a, the, the rhyme and everything, but I think so many rappers had been doing it at New York at that point that they were just doing what was in the air, but no one had put it on wax before. And this was the first great record that became a dance hit. And uh, as Chuck Berry says in the movie Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, uh, when he first had his first hit that white people liked, he was like, then I started writing songs, nice songs, songs for white people. <laughs> um, I, I'm not saying this song was written for white people. It isn't, and that's what made it so groovy. No white person ever heard Up Jump the Boogie to the Boogity Bang, Big Big Bang, Boogity Ding, Ding Ding Dang. And also they say uh, Hip Hop, Hip Hop, right? And we're, it all got its fucking name. Let's see here. Uh, studio owner Sylvia Robinson, struggling with financial problems, went to Harlem World one night in 79. She saw a DJ controlling the crowd with a calm response. The first time she ever saw this, or said Joey, said, uh, she had trouble finding a rapper from the club circuit, so Joey and his friend took her to a New Jersey pizza shop. Uh, Moore brought Jackson to an idling car where Robinson turned on a cassette. He hopped in and began rapping. Two others showed up, uh, Mike Wright and Guy O'Brien, and all three fied for the slot. So she hired all three of them, including our buddy, who passed away today, who's swirling in the heavens, Big Bank Hank. Uh, and, but she has an amazing career, uh, Miss Sylvia Robinson. She uh, was a singer, songwriter, and record producer who uh, formed the pioneering hip-hop group Sugar Hill Gang and made the first commercial that we've covered that. She sang with Mickey Baker as part of the duo Mickey and Sylvia in the 50s and had several hits, including Love is Strange. And that's from 57, man. And this record is from 79. Will you throw a little of the Love is Strange on there? If you've ever seen the movie Casino, it's the scene where Robert De Niro sees Sharon Stone throw all the chips in the hair and the air, and he falls in love with her uh, because love is strange. And it's super sexy record for the 50s. First of all, it's two black people singing about how they want to get it going. Uh, and Mickey... Uh, oh. 
this record? Of course you do. Crank this up for just a second. A lot of people mm-hmm. take it for a game. She had a solo hit under the name Sylvia in 73. And this one I remember. This is my prime AM radio years. Like those of you listening in a blanket fort tonight. In 1973, I had an AM radio glued to my ear at all times to hear the top 40. And Sylvia had a record called Pillow Talk. Spin this record here. Um, This precedes Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer. This precedes all of the records where women have uh, fake O's on record. And Sylvia thought this up and did it herself. She took it to Al Green. Al Green had a record label and the master of love Al Green was a Christian at that point and he thought the record was too suggestive so she produced it on her fucking own and this is the record and I dare you after listening to this to not go out and fucking download it and play it when you're with the one you love crank this shit up for a second it's straight up disco from 73 founded all platinum records. Uh, Mickey eventually fucked off and went to Paris. Back in the days when you couldn't find females behind the mixing board, Sylvia was there, said Dan Charnas, the author of The Big Payback, History of the Business of Hip Hop. It was Sylvia's genius that made rappers delight ahead and blah, blah, blah. She also produced this record. I don't know if she wrote it, but it's by the moments. You have to start spending it now because it has a huge intro like all soul records from 1970. The moments... uh, like uh, uh, Blue Magic or the, um, the Stylistics or the Delphonics or any of uh, the Detroit Emeralds or any a million groups you can think of from that era uh, sang in falsetto and had that bitching look. Uh, when I was in high school, I saw Tavares. Do you remember Tavares? Uh, always with the matching costume. Crank this one up. I think everyone knows this jam, but no one knows that Sylvia Robinson fucking...
have to give them respect. Uh, let's see here. Using Joey Robinson as a talent scout, and that's how she found Big, uh, Big Bang Hank and whatnot. That's her son. Uh, she signed Grandmaster Flash in the Furious Five, and she produ- was a producer on The Message. Uh, crank that one up there. In 1982, is The Message the next one? It should be. Yeah. Um, this record, as much as um, Rapper's, Rapper's Delight starts the fucking ball rolling. This record was the record that we thought, like, oh, rap music means it's going to be salient, significant, and about social issues. Because Sugar Hill Gang's pretty good fun, right? Hotel Motel Holiday Inn. This one is about the, what an inconceivable fucking teeming, senseless murder shithole New York is. And Grandmaster Flash's look, if you recall from those years, was like the little leather hats, no shirts, collars. Uh, they were bad to the bone. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like this, a I think this record is still smashing. Can you turn up a little? And funky. And yes, they did it on Soul Train. While Don, Don Cornelius is like, what the fuck? Broken glass everywhere. Wow. Wow. Uh, she also produced a record. <clears throat> my wife, I told my wife today that Big Bang Hank died. And she goes, wow. And I go, uh, she says, Sylvia Robinson produced him. I'm like, oh, fuck, how did I miss her? She passed away like two years ago. That's why I'm giving her this giant uh, eulogy tonight. Um, and I said, did she write Shame, Shame, Shame by Shirley and Company? This is how my mind works. I knew nothing of what was going on. And yet, I believe, she, will you crank this record up here? This is a 1974, uh, 75 disco classic. Uh, that came out a little bit after the William Vaughn record Be Thankful for What You've Got You may remember this one too or you may not But again The infectiousness of this is The woman who sings this record wrote Let the Good Times Roll with her husband And had a hit with it in the 50s These women are complete veterans How about that Vocals It's a very large black woman and a very skinny Puerto Rican man of dubious sexuality. That is Shirley and Company, a man named Jesus Alvarez. Thank you. I said 
He mentions that he's got his sunroof down and his diamond in the back. Uh, the same year, uh, an artist named William Vaughn uh, did a record called uh, Be Thankful for What You've Got, that you may remember, was covered by uh, uh, Massive Attack, right? Uh, um, and uh, he says, uh, diamond in the back, sunroof top, digging the scene with a gangster lean. I don't think it's any coincidence that it was so important to have diamonds in the back and sunroofs down. In uh, my teenage years, the sun was brutal, so it was imperative that you had your sunroof down. And we didn't always have currency with us. Sometimes we traded in precious gems. <laughs> Will you spin that William Vaughn one? These are the lyrics to Shame, Shame, Shame. Don't stop the motion if you get the notion. You can't stop the groove because you just won't move. Got my sunroof down, got my diamonds in the back. These are the lyrics to Be thankful for what you've got. You may not drive a great big Cadillac. And I don't think anyone's ever surpassed this song. For if you want to get high... Though you may not drive a great big Cadillac phone endorsement. <laughs> I didn't hear you mention gangster white walls at any point. No one's driven a white wall for fucking 200 years, Greg. No one's been cool like William Vaughn for that long. Mm. Two songs with diamond in the back, sunroof top. The crowd, what's the significance of this, Greg? <laughs> When you look back at your childhood, 
in your teenage years, and you think about, um, you know, the 90s. Okay. I'm not going to go into a big soliloquy. Manitas de Plata passed away. Who's Manitas de Plata? Precisely. I hadn't the slightest notion until my wife hipped me to him today, and then I realized I knew who he was. Benitez de Plata is a gypsy guitarist, a French gypsy guitarist, as they say. Um, he was 93. That's why you haven't heard of him, because in the 50s and 60s, he was down by law. Uh, I like this is from the New York Times. At, at the time, music was classified uh, as neither popular or classical. The term world music had not been coined. Thank fuck. <laughs> that meant for but a few years, douchebaggery had been staved off. <laughs> and that the whole food fuckery of David Byrne and all that shit was still in the offing and that we still had a clear playing field where people who played ethnic music from different countries were allowed to do that without being called world because we're America and there's us and then there's the world <laughs> oh you're from the Canary Islands that's like the world music right because what we do here is really good uh, wizardry of the gypsy blah 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 uh, he was born Ricardo Bellardo and Seti on the Mediterranean coast uh, the name Manitas de Plata means little silver hands was bestowed on him as a self-taught prodigy this is what is amazing about him he says personally he had a wife and he had nine children his son uh, he was from a Romani family right he was part gypsy um, was born da 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 uh, he picked up the instrument at age nine d d d d one of his sons formed the gypsy kings <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant in Europe in the last 35 years, but at some point during dinner, you're going to hear, The Gypsy Kings are like the fucking chieftains. They're inescapable. Uh, John Steinbeck called him a great and savage artist. He played Carnegie Hall, uh, and this is the best part. He gave a concert in honor of human rights at the United Nations. This is in the 60s where he and Reyes used Secretary General Utant's office as a changing room. First of all, the fact that Utant was the, the Secretary General of the United Nations. He was Cambodian, and uh, his first name was U. <laughs> uh, he made a picture called Dolly in New York. A filmmaker named Jack Bond showed Reyes and De Plata performing for Salvador Dolly while he painted an image of Don Quixote. You can go online and look at this on YouTube. If you look up Minadista... Uh, if you look him up under, let's see here, what do we got here? Um, Manitas de Plata, M-A-N-I-T-A-S de Plata. Um, if you look that up on YouTube, you can watch Picasso's painting furiously while him and his partner play flamenco guitar. It is fucking really groovy. Um, de Plata appeared on television, uh, fronted by Val Dunigan, that's in England. In 68, the Royal Variety performance alongside the Supremes, that's in England as well. Uh, let's see here. In an interview with Karim Maju for the newspaper Midi Libra last year, he was 93, by the way, he was 92 last year, De Plata, alternately maudlin and spirited, claimed to have slept with 1,001 women <laughs> while saying there was a, t a special place in his heart for Bardot. <laughs> There's a special place in all of our hearts for Bardot. She's not just, her body's not just a monument in the town square, her body is a monument in the town square. Bardot is like K2. She exists. It is up to you to fucking surmount that. And you're not going to. 
with whom he was still in touch, and the actor and singer Jean Moreau, who's also amazeballs. He missed his money and his guitar. Um, he said he played Car- Carnegie Hall. C'est fantastique, he said. Uh, does it blah, 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 blah. Uh, Manitas was married once to a woman with whom he had nine children. By the way, this is his official obituary today. Manitas de Plata was married once to a woman. <laughs> so the thousand and one women he slept with and Bardot and Jean Moreau get in there. But he was married, you know, who gives birth? <laughs> women, right? Yeah, I was married to one of those. His daughter Francoise said in an interview that he also had liaisons with many other women, including her mother, uh, and there's the mother's name finally, Claudette Mario. News reports in France said he had legally recognized at least 13 children, but that the total was 24 to 28. <laughs> and that he was unsure of the number himself. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but isn't that irresponsible and sexist and everything you rail against? He's 93, you guys. It already happened. <laughs> There's nothing we can do about Manitas de Plata at this point. He has spread his errant seed all over Europe and created the Gypsy Kings. If you go online, you can see pictures of him with every single giant fucking figure of the 20th century. And I mean, like, JFK, Muhammad Ali, Picasso, fucking Steinbeck, Bardot. Like, it is insane who Manitas de Plata got fucking near. It is unbelievable, an amazing life. His daughter said, the one we were quoting before, Francoise, he was, quote, a man with one hell of a personality. Adding, and I love that, I love newspaper writing, adding... <laughs> When you're in conversation with people, do you go like this? Hey, I'd like to get a sandwich. And then I'd like to add something. (laughs) And an iced tea. (laughs) Adding, he knew how to make the most out of life. Um, He was 93 and he got with Bardot. Cheers. (laughs) Let me have a little money just to plot it there. Whatever you got there. The first one is good. Exactly what you expected. Right? Imagine there's shrimp everywhere, and little glasses of red wine, and that hard ass manchego cheese, and little pieces of fucking stale ass bread, and you're fucking high, and you're just eating it, right? And then they're like, oh, that, that shrimp was really good. In any case, uh, in conclusion, and thank you for visiting tonight's lecture, um, <laughs> it's, it's uh, Memorial Day today. It's 11-11-1-4, and it was 11-11-1-4 100 years ago as well. Is there any significance to numbers? Well, in so much as that we're ruled by them and that we live uh, with our phones every moment of the day and that numbers generally tend to dictate every... Uh, uh, precipitate every moment of our actions uh, in so much as when we get up and what we're doing and what day it is and where we're going and all that jazz. Yes, I'd say they have some significance. Um, do they on their own exist as numbers that have significance? I'm not a numerologist. I can't answer that. I am, I am however, a genius and a philosopher. <laughs> and I can't answer this. Um, what is the significance of 11-11-14? Uh, well, uh, World War uh, I started uh, in 11 uh, 
Well, World War I started in the year 14, right? In the year 1914, when uh, through a series of hideous accidents, uh, a Serb was able to uh, assassinate the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo, which precipitated the entire world uh, coming to war. The United States, of course, waited for ages and ages. We joined about the last year, I reckon, 1917. In any case, the armistice was signed four years later uh, after insane and untold carnage. The people of the earth in World War I um, really believed that it was the war that would get end all wars. It was fought on several continents, of course, uh, in the Middle East, as you've seen Lawrence of Arabia and whatnot. It was fought in uh, 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 Turkey, if you've seen the movie Gallipoli. I, I go with movies so that we can orient ourselves, because we're in Los Angeles. Uh, and then, uh, if you've seen uh, Paths of Glory, or uh, what's that unbelievably awesome movie with them? Um, uh, oh, Kittens, it's a, it's a French movie from the... Um, Bernard Tavernier and... Um, Philippe Noiret goes back and finds out. In any case, uh, World War I was the most devastating event uh, of the entire century. There's no question up till that point. It also put women into a position where they had a little more uh, juice. The Roaring Twenties are an absolute um, uh, effect of World War I. Um, World War I left nobody unscathed. It also left America a superpower, alone and untrammeled to do what we wanted. Uh, and what we wanted to do was create prohibition, which gave organized crime the giant foothold that it has today. And uh, um, at the end of World War I, when it finished, people thought it would be the war to end all wars. That's what they called it. At the, also at the end of World War I, before uh, it ended, there was a thing called the Spanish flu. On top of the gigantic casualties of civilian and uh, military, uh, the Spanish flu was brought back by soldiers uh, coming back from Europe and infected a good deal of the world. Some people think, what was it, about 10, 15% of the people in the world died of Spanish flu uh, at the end of World War I. So you can imagine the apocalyptic feeling that was in the air uh, then. So we celebrated Armistice Day in this country, the United States, until uh, after the Korean War in 54. In 54, we started calling it Veterans Day. And as you know, in this country, we have this weird sort of un um, inexplicable worship of anyone in uniform at any time. And uh, particularly during the most facile and shallow events, like sporting events or television programs, they'll go, we honor our troops or we support our troops or we love our troops or shit like that. When the reality is, this Congress that's been in and the Senate, the one that was reelected in a big landslide and uh, America has spoken because, you know, Negroes are evil when they have positions of power, uh, is that... Um, uh, we worship our troops, but we never grant them anything like mental health or health care or the largest growing group of homeless people in the United States is women veterans. I was listening to the hip hop station this morning and they gave Big Bank Hank a huge eulogy on um, 92.3. And then they said, if you see a veteran today, buy him a cup of coffee or tell him he did a great job. And I thought there's loads of women veterans. That's what the military is now is men and women together. And so one, there's the sexism of that Two, There's the idea that every single person who serves in uniform as a hero. Um, I am all for everyone in uniform because largely they are made up of the lower classes, as was they always. I think you'll find throughout history, rich people did not volunteer to be the first ones to be shot. Um, that rich people concoct wars and that it's the rest of us that fight these fucking wars. And you'll go even further to find that in Syria uh, or, or, or uh, Egypt or wherever you can think of now, Africa, all the places where wars are raging, that the people who live in those countries didn't volunteer for the wars at all that simply groups of men got together and decided to make these wars, and that's how wars are made. So I feel that changing the focus of Armistice Day, because an armistice is a peace um, uh, signing. An armistice is a treaty. 
An armistice means we agree to settle arms, we agree to put down arms, we agree to no longer war with one another. Changing it to Veterans Day makes it more militaristic and plays into this country's weird fascination with that everyone who ever wears a uniform is a, a looting, shooting, fucking fighting hero. When people who are in the military will tell you that that's not always the game, right? What is your point, Greg? My point is this. Um, is the military going to go away? Is it necessary? No, it's not going to go away. Yes, I suppose it is. Does all the money that should go to different things go there? Yeah, because the companies that profit the most, and I include everyone who's been president. I don't uh, expatiate. I don't exonerate anyone who's ever been president. When you're president, you're commander-in-chief of this country, and therefore one of your jobs is to conduct wars at the behest of the corporations that wish to have them. No war is sacred. The Civil War wasn't sacred. The, the, the World War I wasn't sacred. World War II isn't sacred. Vietnam, our first big L in the L column, as Bill Murray awesomely says in the movie Stripes, were 10 and 1. <laughs> Obviously, the war in Iraq and, and Afghanistan that we fought were absolutely futile when you look at the situation now. What is your point again, Greg? What are you trying to say? What I'm saying is this, is that peace is possible and that it's a graspable concept and that that's what really everyone wants. It's only the forces that be that force war onto us. So when you see people act jingoistic and when you see them act patriotic and when you see them wave flags and stuff like that, that's a very dangerous precedent. Am I saying that the troops are evil inherently? Not at all. I've met many of the troops and I've performed for them and I've visited them and I've done many things with the troops and the troops are beautiful people. Often, as I say, who come from a very poor class who have no choice but to do the job that they have to do. So it's imperative that we as middle class people do not shit on them and piss on their fucking accomplishments uh, because it's what they could do uh, within the sphere of their realm. However, um, they are but tools in the comprehensive, gigantic machine that is the industrial military complex that has run this country for the last several hundred years and that white people started and have put in motion and that white people take no fucking brunt for and that white people no bear no responsibility for and that the rich people who run the giant war machine that's run this country act like uh, something that happens in Ferguson, Missouri is a big aberration where a young teenager would do a thing and then, oh my God, that creates a conflagration. As I've stated in the last episode, which you might not have heard yet, we never admit that the trouble is rich white people who bear no responsibility for anything. We blame it on heroin addicts. We blame it on poor people. We blame it on thugs in the streets. We blame it on gangsters who have no other situation but the situation they are forced to deal with. Whereas rich people have every option, but they choose the option of greed, pain, profit, and growth. And so, I leave you with this. John Lennon uh, said many good things. And one of the many good things he said was, um, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. And we often hear the flag and Christianity waved together at the same time. And all I would do is warn you that people who wave those things together uh, don't often have your best interests in mind. And that you must think for yourself uh, in any case, uh, if you'll spend that last John Lennon jam, what I'd like to leave you with on Veterans Day is one, respect for all the veterans, of course, but two, uh, give peace a chance. Two, I have been one, the two, smartest three, man in the world. Four. You have been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. My name is Jeff Coops. We have and if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. Congratulations. Thank you for Peace tonight.